This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Welcome to part two of our episode on the efficacy of TMS and DBS for OCD. In case you missed part one, we have Dr. Luca Cocky and Dr. Philip Mosley joining us to have this conversation today. Dr. Luca Cocky completed his PhD in neuroscience back in 2007. In 2016, after several years of training at leading research institutions in Switzerland and Australia, he was invited to join the QIMR Bergoffer and is currently a group leader there, as well as an honorary associate professor at the University of Queensland. In his role with his team, Luca has been working on ways of improving TMS for the use of OCD treatment. Our second guest, Dr. Philip Mosley, is a psychiatrist and clinician scientist with expertise in delineating the neural underpinnings of psychiatric and cognitive symptoms arising from focused electrical stimulation. Following a two-year neuropsychiatry fellowship, he was embedded as the neuropsychiatrist at one of the largest deep brain stimulation centres worldwide. Working in both research and private practice, Philip carries a passion in focusing on neurodegenerative disease, movement disorders, and head injury, whilst also providing a consultation liaison psychiatry service to the neurology, medical, and surgical wards at St. Andrew's War Memorial Hospital in Brisbane. Most recently, he was awarded funding to further research DBS for treatment-resistant OCD. In part two of our interview, Philip tells us all about deep brain stimulation and how it has been used to treat severe and treatment resistant OCD. We also talk about outcomes from various clinical trials, the accessibility of these treatments for Australians at the moment, as well as the futility of regret. Let's get started. I know there's a couple of providers here in Melbourne that offer it. But they've got very different criteria. So what is it like for you guys? Because I know based on history, one of the providers, it's quite extensive because it's an invasive procedure. So that there's usually like a review board that will review the medical history of the client or patient that wants to consider it. So they'll look at treatment history, medications and all that sort of stuff. Whereas I think one of the other providers was probably a little bit less stringent I don't know if they're still offering that anymore, though. I think we're just down to one centre that does it here from memory. Yeah. So as far as I'm aware, there's only two centres in Australia that offer DBS, our centre for OCD, Mm -hmm. our centre in Brisbane, and the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is led by a psychiatrist called Dr. Sarah Ferrand, initially set up and still overseen by a very experienced psychiatrist called Dr. Dennis Velikoulis. And they were actually the first people in Australia to do DBS for OCD. And sorry if I get this wrong, but my understanding is they have a, a funding agreement with their local health authority that provides funds to do a small number of cases every year, maybe only two or three. In Brisbane, I should say there's no federal funding for DBS for OCD. Our cases were done as part of a clinical trial. 
and we have some money from the National Health and Medical Research Council to do some more cases. So our cases were funded by, as part of a as part of a clinical trial. In both states, in Victoria and Queensland, there is state legislation that regulates access to any brain surgery for mental health or psychiatric conditions. And that's, I think, important. You know, as psychiatrists, we've got to recognise we don't have a great history of treating people well with severe psychiatric illness. And so these independent tribunals, they're called in Queensland, mental health review tribunals, are set up to ensure that people coming forward for the surgery are doing so of their own volition, that they're able to consent voluntarily, that they know all the risks and of the procedure, and uh, they're being looked after appropriately. So in our trial, candidates had to have had a long history of over many years of OCD that had failed to respond to a large number of biological treatments, including combination antidepressant medication with atypical antipsychotic medication. And they also had to have had uh, verified psychotherapy in the form of exposure and response prevention psychotherapy. In reality, all of our participants in the trial had had lifelong histories of awful OCD with innumerable trials of every possible medication you could think yeah. of, many, many courses of psychological therapy, and lots of them had actually been down to the Melbourne Clinic to do the inpatient course there as well. And they'd had things like ECT and TMS and, yeah, they're really, really treatment refractory. Yeah, the picture looks very similar here in Melbourne in terms of how the Royal Melbourne approaches their reviews of all the cases that come forward to consider for the surgery as well. Yeah. Which, like you said, isn't necessary. It's very thorough. It sounds like, though, that the demand is possibly higher than the available services. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So it's dreadful. So after our trial was published a year ago or so, got a bit of media interest, people contacting me all the time with tragic stories saying, my life's dreadful. I've lived for 30 years with this condition. It's hard to sustain relationships or employment. Everything's failed. I've tried everything. Can you help me? And you'd say to these people, I'd love to help you, but I can't. There's no federal mechanism to do this, to offer you this therapy. If you were, if we had the spots, you'd be a candidate. Thankfully, with this trial funding that we've been able to secure, we can do a few more cases. One of the things that we've done from our centre in Brisbane is we've applied to the government to ask them to consider an MBS item number for DBS for OCD, just the same as one is available for Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders, so that this can become part of a therapeutic armamentarium for these individuals with very, very severe lifelong illnesses. So like Lucas said, not positioning this as, as a silver bullet, not positioning it as a therapy that is suitable for everyone, but for as part of the overall treatment strategy for those small number of people that are truly treatment refractory and may benefit. Is it simply just that DBS for OCD is still considered too contemporary for the government to feel confident in providing funding for it, or is it? So we've replied to the Medicare Services Advisory Committee or MSAC Committee, which is the government committee that regulates or provides information or advice to the federal government on health economics and funding decisions for services. And we've had a very positive reception so far. We've had two committee. I hope I'm allowed to tell you this. I don't think it's confidential. We've had two very positive meetings. It takes a long time, mm-hmm. but at the moment they're doing another health, what's called a health technology assessment. The evidence for the effectiveness of DBS for severe treatment refractory OCD is occurring worldwide. 
there have been now five high-quality, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of DBS for OCD that have shown positive results. Different centers around the world examining whether this treatment truly works or whether comparing it against placebo treatment, and they found that it does have a statistically significant benefit over over placebo, which is very encouraging. Numbers worldwide are small. We're talking about 60 or so people that have had this treatment as part of a double-blind clinical trial worldwide. But we think that that is an appropriately small number, given that this is, you know, much as we like as someone who has a team who do this every week for, for Parkinson's disease, much as we like to think of it as a fairly routine part of uh, people's people's treatment, for most people, it is considered an invasive therapy. Yeah. And it's a lot of commitment to go through for people. So I think it's appropriate that those numbers are low. We've got to do this carefully and rigorously. But I think for these very sick people, there is evidence now that is that it is an, uh, an appropriate treatment. Well, that's very encouraging. That's really exciting. And coming back to you, Luca, I didn't realize that TMS was as accessible as it is. That's also extremely encouraging too. For uh, depression, it is very accessible. For OCD, we will try to make it more accessible through our center. But again, in an initial stage of rolling out to try to gain more data about, uh, you know, as Phil said, all these kind of interventions require a huge amount of evidence. Phil, I might just ask a follow-up question about DBS, if I may. You mentioned um, when you were talking about movement disorders, about placing the electrodes, one in each hemisphere. What are the parts of the brain that you're trying to target for OCD relative to movement disorders? So in Parkinson's disease, we target part of the brain called the subthalamic nucleus, which is a structure within the basal ganglia, which we know from research in non-human primates, unfortunately. It's not the site of Parkinson's disease. Its functioning is affected by the loss of dopamine in the brain that occurs in Parkinson's disease. And we put the electrodes in there, and by stimulating that part of the brain, we can reduce the knock-on effect of that dysfunction in more widespread regions of the brain. In OCD, in our group, we place the electrodes in a different part of the brain called the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. That nucleus is still in the deep brain structures in the midbrain, but distinct from the subthalamic nucleus. It's an important outflow tract of a region called the amygdala, which is part of the brain that signals fear and is involved in long-term states of anxiety and apprehension. And what we think happens, similar to what you were saying earlier about the response people to DBS, is we think what we're doing in that circuit, linking the amygdala with the frontal pole of the brain, a region called the orbitofrontal cortex, is we think that we are turning the volume down on some of these fear signals that are associated with intrusive thoughts and compulsive rituals. That is so cool. When we provide psychoeducation to our clients, we often talk about the relationship between the amygdala and the frontal cortex and all that sort of stuff. And we conceptualize exposure as a, a form of kind of retraining and rebuilding and strengthening some of those neural pathways. And it's just so amazing to kind of know that when you're putting in those electrodes, you're targeting similar sorts of targets. And it's just amazing to kind of have that Oddly enough, again, <laughs> reassurance, but also knowing that for people who do struggle through the repetition and sitting with that discomfort, that there's now an alternative option. And hopefully it is something that can be a little bit more accessible 
for people who are really struggling because you're not wrong in terms of what you described earlier. You know, sadly, when OCD really takes hold, it absolutely destroys lives in that way in terms of quality of life. And it's just so heartbreaking to see and hear. And as a therapist, when you're working with that, you feel limited in that approach. So it's really promising to hear that the outcomes are really moving in the right direction. There is still a huge stigma surrounding mental illness, at least for the people that came and enrolled in our trial, knowing that there is actually a physical cause, or at least maybe not a cause, but a physical component of the pathology. Sometimes just knowing that it's a relief in the sense, as you know, some of the obsession, it's hard, the insight of, oh, actually, this is an obsession, or actually, this is a compulsion, is is not real, but that's already a, a therapeutic breakthrough. No? Some people don't have that, and they think, oh, I am actually bad, or I'm turning bad, or this thing. Yeah. So knowing that the pathology or the phenomenology that they experience mirror into the activity of certain brain circuits, I think that's powerful for the patients, but it's also powerful for, I think, the community. And I think in Australia, we came a long way to try to destigmatize mental illness and medicalize mental illness. Same thing that happened with addiction, no? where the addicts are not, hopefully, they start to be less seen as bad people that make bad decisions, but like a medical condition. I think we are going in that direction, showing that this is a medical condition. It's not something that is linked to your personality or how you, you know, you're just bad or you want to make a drama. Yeah. yeah. Just on that, we've got some really cool unpublished research at the moment where we took the people in who were in our trial with severe OCD and we put them in a scanner and we showed them pictures that triggered their OCD. So, for example, someone with contamination-focused OCD, we showed them pictures of a dirty toilet, disgusting stuff. And we compared that to people with without OCD that were age-matched and gender-matched that we put into the scanner as well. And in people without OCD, you show them a dirty picture and their amygdala, or disgusting picture, sorry, or frightening picture, and their amygdala lights up, um, one of a better phrase, it becomes quite active. And that correlates with how unpleasant the person finds that picture. But if you show them the picture again and again and again and again over multiple trials, the level of disgust that the person experiences goes down and the amygdala activity also correspondingly reduces. So the brain is habituating to that stimulus. If you put someone with treatment refractory OCD in a scanner and show them that same picture again and again, instead of going down, their amygdala activity actually goes up. It goes up. It's sensitizing to that inflammatory stimulus. And correspondingly, they continue to rate that picture as very, very distressing. So there is a small sample size, yada, 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 but it's further evidence that there is something different in the brains of these people with very severe OCD. It's not a moral or characterological failing. It is at some level, at least, a wiring issue that we can modulate with a variety of techniques, neuromodulation, medication, psychotherapy. But these people aren't weak people. Their, their brains are funky. And in fact, you could argue that they're, what it takes to live with OCD actually makes them incredibly determined, courageous. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We have two questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of every episode, which we'll ask you guys as well. The first is, what is something that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier in your career? We learn a lot on try to translating our results from the 
lab, if you want, into therapy. And we made quite a bit of mistake and took a long time. And even establishing this new non-for-profit clinic, the Queensland Nurse Stimulation Center, was very, very difficult. And knowing a little bit more how to navigate this thing would have made things easier and faster and better for the patients. We are very fortunate to have a multidisciplinary team that allow us to work together like that. But too often there is silos. You know, you grow up in a silos as a scientist or as a clinician, you work in your silos without really cross paths. And that's something that I also wish I would have started before in doing. But thanks to Phil, thanks to other people, we are finally able to do it. What about you, Phil? I'm kind of perfect, so I don't really have any any regrets. <laughs> Maybe you just wish that you knew that you were perfect earlier in your career? <laughs> you know, in reality, I think as doctors, we have this tendency to look through what we call the retrospectoscope all the time. We have this inflated sense of personal responsibility and guilt. And my kind of reaction to that is to try very hard not to look back and think about what could have been or what should have been and just kind of just take each day as it comes. Someone asked me, what tips would you have for young researchers? And I said, well, you know, be like me, be male, be white, be heterosexual, be cisgendered, you know, come from a stable background with good parents who are interested in your education. You know, so, <laughs> you know I, I think you know, people like me have to check their privilege, really, a fair bit. So I'm very grateful. But I also, you know, I try just to be very grateful for what I've got and not think too much about what could have been. But I imagine in um in fields like yourselves where you're constantly trying to evolve, you surely can't spend too much time looking backwards because it is because of what you didn't know before is the path that led to what you know now. Is it not so it wouldn't be useful to spend too much time in that space of regret? I don't think there is regret. You just have to as feel uh, in his simplicity, it actually is right in the sense you have to move on and look forward. If you dwell too much in the past or what didn't work, yeah. Yeah, I feel the same. You know, I think about the experiences I had as an, I think Celine, you'll say the same thing mm. as an early career psychologist. And of course, we're always evolving. And there are a lot of things I know now that, you know, would have been great to know them, but I didn't know them and I couldn't have known them yet. And it was a pathway that I had to travel in order to get to the point that I am at now. Like you say, feel grateful that I'm here now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. As a doctor, especially you think about you know, I think about patients that I still think about patients that I treated 15 years ago. And I think, oh, gee, I was did a terrible job. If I was there now, I'd do things very differently. But I did my best at the time with the knowledge that I have. That's always what I say to my patients. I say, look, I'm definitely not the best psychiatrist out there, but I'll just do the best I can with the tools I've got. And that's all I can do. It's very true. And that's what science is, right? Like it's about learning and evolving and, and looking at all the things that we used to know and and look at improving that with the knowledge that we have at the time. And it just gets better and better all the time. Even on our podcast, we've had so many people say the same sorts of things in terms of, I wish I could delete the first edition of the book that I wrote about this, or I wish I knew this information 15, 20 years ago, I would have done things very differently. But if we don't have the knowledge, how are we to know? The other one we ask is, in terms of obsessions and compulsions, intrusive thoughts trigger a lot of these and we try to normalize it as much as possible because we also get people experiencing OCD and family members listening to the podcast, not just clinicians. So we try and normalize it as much as possible and ask our guests if they're willing to share an intrusive thought that they experience or that you might be aware of. If so, what is that intrusive thought? I have this intrusive thought, right, that I, I'm going to forget people's names, even when I know their names. <laughs> but when I 
meet them, I have this thought, oh, I'm going to get their name wrong. And is that really their name? And then if I, when I get their name wrong, they're going to think that I'm an idiot and I'm going to look like a fool. And so I always say, hello, John. <laughs> and then I look like an idiot anyway. Oh, do you know, I have that and I'd not ever conceptualized it as an intrusive thought. I've internalized it as I'm bad with names, but you're right. It's an intrusive thought. I'm, I'm not bad with names because I know mm. their name. I know their name, but I have doubt and that I'll look like an idiot. And so I don't use their name. Hey, mate. Yeah, yeah I do that as well. Yeah, I deliberately. <laughs> I go, oh, you're so, uh, oh, yeah. So I was just talking. I was, I was just saying. To him, <laughs> I'm genuinely bad with names. I'm really good with faces. So someone will be explaining something to me and I'll be like, I've got no idea who you're talking about. And then I'll see them and I'll be like, oh, I know who this person is and I can tell you just about everything I know about them. But <laughs> ask me the name and I'm like completely go blank. Yeah. What about you, Luca? I think I have. Uh, <laughs> I can suggest some, Luca. <laughs> Definitely making. No, I don't want you to suggest it. Definitely making a mistake. Uh, I'm quite pedantic in general and making mistakes, making errors in analysis and like that. And, and everyone in the team is suffering tremendously from this obsessivity that I have. Um, it's actually pretty bad, but that's something that I feel can probably confirm in having order. I would definitely put you on the OCPD spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> quite rigid as a personality, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both for your time today. This has been a great discussion. I think what you've done to such a beautiful job of doing today is helping take something that is inherently extremely complex and make it very understandable for our listeners. And I think I speak for Selena both for us too. And look, and thank you both for your research, because of course, all of the work that you're doing, you know, the clients that we work with are, are directly benefiting from your contributions to the field and from the extra care that we can provide because of the research that you're conducting. We as clinicians are better armed because of all of the work that you do and that directly impacts our clients and their families. I hope we have an opportunity to speak again. I've really loved today. Thank you. I think a lot of our clients often have these questions for us and we try to do as much as we can in explaining it, but you guys have done such a wonderful job as Tori has said and it is invaluable and the work that you do hopefully will just be able to help more and more people as it expands and evolves. And I hope you can achieve the goals that you set out for yourselves as well, because it's absolutely needed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting us. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>